0: Hello and welcome to Fidelity Connects, a Fidelity Investments Canada podcast, connecting you to the world of investing and helping you stay ahead. Energy is in the spotlight on the program today as Fidelity Equity Research Analysts Thomas Goldthorpe and Lulu Xiang joins host Brian Borsakowski to talk about the global energy markets, Europe's energy supply, and other trends affecting the sector. In her research, Lulu covers midstream and uranium, and outside energy, she covers precious metals. Lulu says there is really good visibility on what the uranium space will look like over the next few years, and she says there could be an investment opportunity there. Thomas covers the EMP companies and integrated, primarily the people producing the oil and refineries. Thomas comments on the economic picture and how it has affected oil prices. He says over the last year the economy has slowed down so demand for oil is weaker. On the supply side, it has not been as bad as expected. They discuss the energy transition and how it is affecting the energy sector. Lulu says for the sectors she covers, the majority of the impact is on midstream pipelines. Lately it's been hard to permit new pipelines. The good thing is some companies have higher natural gas exposure than to crude, which is leaning into the movements of the energy transition. Thomas and Lulu also touch on carbon capture technology, nuclear plants, and LNG, or liquefied natural gas. This podcast was recorded on March 31, 2023. The views and opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect those of Fidelity Investments Canada, ULC, or its affiliates.
1: Lulu, Thomas, thanks for being here. Thank you. Thank you. So let's start with the big news of the week. Uh, the budget, there was the uh, clean tech, clean energy was a big part of that. What do you make
2: of uh, the promises from the federal government? All right, so first off, starting on CCUS, which is carbon capture, uh, what we saw, we didn't see a lot of new incremental information out of the federal government. As basically now the federal government has offered some money through ITCs for carbon capture, but they're waiting for the Alberta government to come up with their own subsidy program. And once the Alberta government come out with their own subsidy program, the federal government has talked to actually providing more subsidies themselves. But the problem with the Alberta government is there's an election coming up in May, we're gonna to have to wait for the election. Uh, once a new or the existing leadership stays in place, it's gonna take a couple of months for them to determine what their CCUS policy is gonna be. And then once that's determined, then them and the federal government can work together. So net net on CCUS, uh, it's still taking a bit longer than people expect. Uh, But ultimately, uh, that's where they're going. And then beyond that, they did offer uh, various incentives to technologies like hydrogen, um, battery, uh, nuclear as well. Lulu, anything from your perspective that you were looking at?
3: Yeah, so I essentially had Fidelity. I cover nuclear and uranium. So it's a uh, good news for the uranium space and nuclear space as well because we got more support from the government. We can see the changed tones from the Canadian government. We already seen that from like a European and the U.S. previously. So right now, the Canadian government providing more support in terms of a tax credit to the nuclear plants, uh, kind of electricity generation, and as well as technology and equipment. So this is generally uh, good news for the new uh, uranium space.
1: Great. Um, and, and uh, you know, the, I think the government, people are expecting them to respond to the Inflation Reduction Act. Um, just based on what you've seen, is that response strong enough? Um, how do we now compare to what the U.S.
2: has done? Generally now, I think the inflation, the IRA in the U.S., the Inflation Reduction Act, is still more generous. So investment dollars are still flowing sort of away from Canada uh, to the U.S. However, um, the government has talked to making their subsidies more competitive. So what we saw in the budget, they're not quite there yet, but it looks like they will get there over time.
1: Great. Um, you know, just before we continue, it would be great if both of you maybe uh, kind of level, set, give us some context. What, what do each of you cover in the energy space? Lulu, you want
2: to? Uh,
3: sure. So uh, for the energy space, I cover um, midstream, so that's pipelines and oil fuel services, as well as uranium. And also uh, outside energy, I also
2: cover uh, precious metals like gold and silver. Great. Thomas? And for me, I cover the the EMP companies and integrated, so primarily the people who are actually producing the oil, as well as uh, the refinery. So it's certainly always an exciting sector to watch. Um,
1: Last year, oil prices were over $100. Now they're around 75. It's been up and down this year. Um, talk to me about maybe how kind of the economic picture, higher inflation interest rates have impacted oil prices and uh, what do you kind of make of where we're at now? Thomas. Okay,
2: so so basically what's happened over the last year is you had a few things. So one, the economy has being a bit slower than expected. So oil demand is actually been a bit weaker. And then on the supply side, supply actually hasn't been uh, as bad as people expected, specifically from Russia and its impact on the war. Um, and then now on a go-forward basis, especially if we get into the second half this year, um, the outlook looks um, yeah less constructive, uh, primarily for two reasons. One, um, I expect that Russian supply will remain uh, relatively healthy. So the big thing with Russian supply, it actually hasn't gone down much since mm-hmm. pre-war levels. Um, and we can dig into that if you want to. And then on the other side, on the demand side... Uh, I expect, yeah, there is strong Chinese recovery demand, but right. offsetting that is uh, continued economic pressure, which should put downward pressure on uh, overall global uh, oil demand.
1: And two weeks ago, I mean, the banking crisis, we saw oil prices fall, they've come back, um, which is interesting. Why would why would the banking crisis that we saw in the US impact oil prices?
2: Okay, so there's two parts of it. So one, in the paper market, you had a lot of paper selling linked to that. So, for example, Credit Suisse was a big provider of credit to, to on the oil commodity. so they had a lot of kind of forced selling linked to that. Um, but the big thing is you always have this balance in any of these situations, especially in oil versus the fundamentals versus the paper market. So with the banking crisis, though, it should be or may be negative for a forward looking demand specifically look, linked to kind of regional bank um, lending. However, it doesn't impact demand today. So supply and demand generally dictates where prices ultimately settle. So today supply and demand um, is is fine, mm-hmm. but the forward looking is maybe a little more negative post the post the banking crisis. But you actually have to see that negative impact of that crisis on supply and demand before you really see it show up in prices.
1: And so we're, so we're at about seventy five dollars now.
2: Is that that's right? That's correct. Um, which is
1: helped consumers. Uh, you know, inflation year over year is going down in part because gas prices are falling. Um, so, how you know are seventy five dollars still good for companies? Um, certainly good for consumers. How is that sort of price level?
2: Yeah, like seventy five is still very good. So seventy five is great for the companies. It, it's well above marginal costs, well above incentive costs. Um, all basically all pro- projects globally make make money at seventy five dollar oil. Um, so yeah, so these companies are very healthy right now, generating good free cash flow, returning cash to shareholders, and uh, repaying debt.
1: Great. And Lulu, just from uh, the companies that you cover in terms of sort of the economic impact on, on the space that you're looking at, what have you seen?
3: Yeah, so for my companies, mainly in the energy space, is the pipelines and then oil field services. For the pipelines in Canada, they are normally kind of highly contracted. They're, they don't have like a big uh, commodity linked exposure. So for the commodity price wins, uh, like in the near term, it doesn't really impact them. So that's why, like, if we are thinking about going out um, kind of a couple months forward, if we really see a recession, the, the midstream company is normally where people are to hide uh, among the energy space. and. On the other side, like oil fuel services, uh, it's kind of a more torty business. So I have a higher leverage to a commodity price. So like in an environment, if a commodity price really goes down, probably we're going to see more like a bigger impact on the oil fuel services companies.
1: Um, You know, we can't talk about the energy sector without the the energy transition and the impact it's having on the companies that you're covering and, and where you see this going. Um, where, where do you think we are in this energy transition? And how is it affecting the energy sector? Lulu, if you want to start with that.
3: Yeah, sure. So for my space, uh, like a majority of the impact, I would think, will be on the mainstream the pipelines because they are transporting like the crude oil and natural gas, and then this is kind of a considered as like a, the, the old type of energy. Uh, so if we are thinking about uh, these uh, names, like historically, they are growing great in the last decade. It was like kind of a low double-digit growth rate, but then going forward, given it's really hard to permit uh, new pipelines and so demand is kind of a peaking. So probably we're going to see like a low single digit. So that's kind of the outlook. It's not as rosy. Mm -hmm. And on the other side, they have really high leverage. Uh, So like they all have about three times leverage and some are even like five times leverage. So going forward, their uh, goal is to kind of reducing uh, leverage and then some of them may be need to kind of adapt some asset. But the good thing about these is uh, some companies within my coverage, they have higher uh, natural gas exposure than the crude. So that's kind of leaning towards energy transition. And some of them also have higher exposure to green energy. Some are kind of uh, leveraging their existing infrastructure to transport ammonia and um, also have like kind of a um, green power generation, solar, wind, etc. So their transition towards that but probably going to take a a little bit longer. So generally speaking, uh, there is some opportunity there, but also some challenges for them as well.
2: And what do you see? Yeah, so I think there has been a fairly large change over the last two years. So by the end of 2020, 2020, it's probably peak of um, the social view of like divestitures we just don't own carbon, all carbon's bad, Um, and a lot of focus on just the E factor, not the social and governance factor. But I think with both the Russian invasion and kind of the spike up we've seen in hydrocarbon prices, and a greater understanding that uh, the pace of transition, though it is fast, will not happen overnight. And we still there's still a place for hydrocarbons. There's a little more uh, discretion between various factors. So one on the environmental side, a great case study is the oil sands, which uh, were target number one for global divestiture. Um, and now I think people look at it and say, hey, with the Pathways Alliance, with a lot of work they're doing to decarbonize, um, they're becoming more investable. Mm. Because if you really want to own a space that is going to really lower their carbon emissions, the oil sands are one of the best best investments in the world uh, versus um, a company that may have low carbon emissions but may not actually be cutting. Um, and then you've seen it also on, as Lulu referred to is on the natural gas side, which is though gas is carbon, it does play an important role in both displacing coal, but also... Um, serving as uh, um, as a balancing factor for other um, other uh, types of generation like solar and wind that are up and down. So gas can easily be an intermediate source which can ramp up and ramp down very easily. Um, so again, carbon has, I think on a gas side, it's being viewed as more of a transition fuel as opposed to just pure carbon, carbon bad. Um, and then um and then the other point I think on, on, on all this all this topic as well is just a greater understanding of uh, the social and governance factors. Mm-hmm. Uh, so for example, in Canada, I think in leading up to the Russian invasion, a lot of um, sustainable investors were invested in Russia because it screened really well on a, on a carbon intensity basis mm-hmm. versus Canadian oil sands. So, um, and a lot of those factors were backwards looking, not actually forward looking. And then with the invasion, um, a lot of them got burned because they weren't spending enough time on the social factors or the governance factors. And now I think specifically for Canada, I think Canada has been a relative winner with this new mindset over the last few years because it has a clear path to decarbonizing. um, And yeah, it's much more apparent the benefits of having uh, best-in-class social and best-in-class governance.
1: Right, so you're seeing now in more investments coming into Canada. Because there was, yeah, a lot of criticism or commentary on <laughs> people not investing in Canada, but you're seeing that reverse, or, or more, more people are paying attention now?
2: Yeah, I think more people are, you're seeing it reverse. It's still not a tidal wave yeah. the other way, but you're definitely seeing more dollars go in, and you're seeing less of this, I just can't own. Oil sands, it's on the exclusion list. Can't own it, right? So I think there's a little more pragmatism, right? Well, the Canada, but also that could be said for the whole energy space as well. In that, a lot of people were just zero weight energy, don't own energy, carbon bad, carbon global warming, can't own it. Um, And now a lot of those investors have come in and said, "Hey, um, two fearful. One, yeah, obviously we still need carbon. And the other thing is, you can actually enact change by working with the companies as opposed to just divesting them and." putting them in private hands where the private hands may not be as good actors um, in dealing with that transition as you can actually be if you own the company and work directly with
1: them. Right. So just on carbon capture, um, because it always feels like this thing that's far out into the future, um, but it sounds like companies are starting to think about this and trying to decarbonize. So when it comes to carbon capture technology, where are we with the evolution and innovation around that? Are companies
2: actually doing this or just investing in it? Where, Where are we? Yeah. So we're actually a lot further along in this journey than we were two to three years ago. So the technology's there. There's obviously a lot of incremental improvements that can be done, but the t- technology's there, it's known, um, we've known how to do it for a while. And it's all about cost, right? Because um, the big thing on cost, it obviously costs a lot of money to capture the carbon. Um, and people just want to have more certainty around the regulatory framework to justify the, the investment cost. So in Canada, what we've seen is the Pathways Alliance, which is the sixth largest oil sands companies in Canada are all got together, they all work together to, um, and they've all committed to a 2050 uh, net zero target, but they also have uh, more immediate targets like in 2030. So the big thing is they're all working together. So traditionally, right, if you know Canadian oil sands, it's like Suncor would refuse to work with IMO, Mm -hmm. would refuse to work with Snowis. they would all have these big competitions with each other and no one would tell anyone. So now they're all actually working together to get the solution. So with pathways, um, they have committed to build uh, like a carbon pipeline, build capture facilities at various uh, various one of their plants, share technologies. That they'll have best in class, and yeah, I think those investments are coming mm-hmm. in the next two to three years. And they do have a pathway pathway to uh, to materially cut their emissions within the next ten years, but also obviously get to the right. uh, mm-hmm. twenty fifty net zero target.
3: And also in my space, I also cover oil field services. There are certain companies, they also have exposure to carbon capture. They leverage in their existing technology. For example, a certain company, they were really good at like managing the oil fluid, like a movement. Mm-hmm. Right now, they leverage the same technology on carbon capture so to manage the, the carbon and to make sure there's no leaks and avoid any risk. So I think this is also what people are getting there.
1: Right. So on pipelines. So um, that's all also been a big headline over the years. Uh, TMX pipeline. Um, that's kind of the big one that's kind of people are still talking about. Where is that in progress? How's that going to affect uh, the Canadian energy industry?
3: Yeah, so the, the pipeline is still the, under construction, so probably you heard the news about like the, the cost uh, of the building that pipeline kind of escalated mm-hmm. uh, because of all the labor costs and equipment costs and also supply chain issue. And also you have to think about that's impacted by the weather as well. There's only certain period in the year they can construct the, the pipeline. Uh, right now, the, the estimate is around like a, kind of early 2024, the pipeline going to be online. And because there's actually two pipeline building at the same time, the coast also GasLink and the TMX. So they are kind of also competing on, on labor a little bit, but then it's good to see as finally, uh, hopefully gonna be online in 2024 that's gonna solve our egress issue in Canada.
1: Yeah. So just talk more about that. So what will that mean for, for getting energy and uh, getting oil across the country?
3: Yeah, so that means like we're gonna along on egress, means we have more capacity to move oil out of Canada. So that's good for the producers so they can get a fair price. There's a little uh, kind of a reduced discount uh, on their uh, crude uh, and also in the sense that potentially, because maybe uh, as Thomas alluded earlier, uh, Canadian oil can consider as more greener, then yeah. probably they will be uh, a little bit more incentivized to produce more compared to like other regions uh, globally. So I think that's generally uh, a good news for uh, for the pipeline for the Canadian oil industry.
1: You mentioned you know labor costs rising and inflation's everywhere. How does rising inflation affect uh, future pipelines? Will we see, you know, is this is TMX uh, it, or we're going to see more, or is it getting expensive?
3: Yeah, indeed, like building new pipelines are getting very expensive, not only from the labor availability, labor costs uh, perspective, but just uh, getting the permit. And then the, the people who li- uh, live nearby, they don't want the pipeline to be like going through their area. So going forward, uh, um, kind of the pipeline uh, subsector will grow much more slower than before. Uh, so that's why I feel like that's uh, the headwind in the sector. Yeah, but in terms of like a cost per se, a lot of the pipelines, they can pass on the, the cost to the, the end uh, producer uh, through like inflation escalator. Right. So that's uh, kind of the good news. And then uh, uh, similarly, on my coverage on oil field services uh, companies, they can also pass through the cost. So it may not be as a big issue as my uh, gold mining companies, right. <laughs> Yeah, that's... they because the gold price kind of dictated globally, so they right. cannot really pass on the cost. Yeah. <laughs>
1: I have to ask about LNG. So, um, you know, LNG has been a topic in Canada for many years now. I think a decade ago, we were supposed to have a big LNG sector. Um, we've made some developments. Maybe, Thomas, how big is LNG in Canada? And where do we need to go from here, especially with the U.S. making big investments over the last several years?
2: Right. So LNG has come. So if you look at 10 years ago, we were expected to do a lot of LNG. Much of that investment got redirected towards the US due to permitting and other uh, regulatory issues. But there's still a large project called LNG Canada that is coming um, on the West Coast. And there's a few other smaller ones as well. And the great thing with those LNG projects is obviously allows for the export of natural gas from um, Northeast BC, which is a highly economic, one of the cheapest places in the globe to produce natural gas, and allows it to be exported globally. And the great thing with LNG is when it gets exported, it actually allows for the displacement of coal, so it allows for a lot of uh, carbon, uh, carbon offset. Um, so with LNG, so it's a major project, obviously linked to Coastal Gas GasLink, um, there is some ability to expand it on a brownfield basis. So that project alone will drive kind of material uptick investment in um, natural gas production in Canada.
1: Um, any thoughts about LNG being exported through
2: Churchill? Oh, that is interesting. Uh, yeah, I think for now, though, it... Um, <laughs> I, I, I actually never heard the truth, but it is interesting on a global global warming angle. Yeah. Uh, there's less perma, perma ice there. Mm-hmm. It's easier. Northwest Passage. Mm-hmm. Right. All that. Um, yeah, I think realistically today, it's unlikely because mm-hmm. you do have to build a pipeline all the way up there. You have to get it permitted. Permitting is very difficult in this environment, and if you were to do that, why not just build in the Gulf of Mexico? Is probably a lot cheaper. Uh, all the infrastructure is already there, um, so I would think maybe, but it's it's, it's fairly unlikely right. to think today.
1: So it sounds like there's some opportunity here to expand, uh, but the U.S. still has a bigger
2: uh, industry there, LNG exporting. Than we right, have. right, and the big thing with the U.S. is a lot easier to get stuff permitted. Um, it's a lot cheaper, right? Labor availability. In the south, you don't have to winterize all your facilities, so literally it costs half as much to build. Permitting takes half as long, uh, and there's a really good resource in the Gulf, whether it's uh, the Haynesville right in Louisiana, or in the Permian, there's a lot of gas mm-hmm. that the gas is actually relatively close there. So for now, if you want to get something done quickly on budget, uh, it's just a lot easier to Can do. Can we with get the there? Gas. Can we compete with the with the US at some point? Or uh... in in theory, yes. Yeah. Um, well, as it stands right now, as you saw with stuff like TMX and cost overruns on TMX, cost overruns at cost of gasoline, cost overruns with a lot of infrastructure projects, um, it's possible, but it's, 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 it's going to be difficult. Yeah. Because theoretically, right, like BC should be where, in a perfect world, that's where the LNG facility terminal should be, because it's a lot closer to ship it, right, right? from the West Coast to China than yeah. to ship it from the Gulf through the Panama Canal and up to China. Right. Right. But there's just a lot of other headwinds, I guess, in Canada that aren't necessarily there in the U.S. that make all this stuff a lot more difficult. Right. Yeah. We
3: also have an exposure, like through the pipeline companies. We also kind of have indirect exposure to LNG in, in U.S. because mm. um, our incub- uh, in, incumbent our uh, component player in the mainstream company, they're shipping all the way from like uh, Alberta to like U.S. Gulf Coast. So that's a kind of a, a another race rule for like uh, if the uh, U.S. LNG really booming, we can get some benefit from the midstream. Population. Right, that's good. <laughs> um,
1: shifting to maybe some other uh, energy alternatives, nuclear. Again, yeah. this, you know a lot of people talk about nuclear and perhaps as an alternative to some of the energy sources, traditional energy sources. Um, how do you see Canada making investments in nuclear and does that become a bigger part of the energy mix maybe globally in the future?
3: Yeah, definitely. We already see the shift uh, globally uh, from the different governments. We have more kind of a nuclear plant extension and a lot of uh, countries right now sanctioning new uh, nuclear plants, not only the, the standard one, but also like a, a SMR, like a small modular reactors. So this is definitely like a good news globally in terms of a demand uh, for nuclear. And for my coverage, I cover uranium. So that's kind of uh, individually eventually uh, positive for uranium demand as well uh, in terms of uh, kind of a, this is a, more from the, the demand side of the story mm-hmm. right from the supply side this industry like a uranium particular uranium mining is um, kind of an oligopoly structure uh, so there's only very few players like a uh, control the, the supply and 2 two third of it is actually come from state-owned company like a normal like a North American investor mm-hmm. probably wouldn't like um, kind of a touch on that so a lot of uh, investable companies are in Canada and in US so that's uh, kind of uh, good yeah. news for, for the investors here. Um, and then just uh, we see the discipline in the supply, bringing new demand, a uh, new supply to the market. And also we see there's essentially nuclear construction, the uranium mine construction is like a long time. So essentially we have a really good visibility of what's the uh, supply going to look like in the next five to ten years. So the setup is uh, pretty well for the uranium space uh, from the supply demand perspective. Yeah. So
1: there's an investment opportunity here. It yeah,
3: like. exactly. And I
1: guess, you know, speaking of it, we're talking, you know, big picture uh, energy sector. But in terms of the investment opportunity, I think Canadians have always said, well, we live in Canada. We got to invest in energy. Um, But there's a lot going on, as we've been discussing. So talk about maybe the the short term case and the long term case for investing in energy. Why would someone want to look at the energy sector and uh, where are the opportunities?
2: Thomas? Right. So I guess within Canada, the investment opportunities are primarily from, one, Canadian energy companies still trade a large discount to U.S. energy companies. So there is a potential for that discount versus historical levels to to close. Um, Egress has always been a risk in Canada. So Lulu touched on that. Uh, But in general, you remember, like, um, we basically ran out of pipe and differentials, like, oil, pretty much went to zero at the end of 2018. And then we had to do all this crude by rail, which is very expensive. So you put the oil on uh, rail cars and you ship it out. So that's a lot more expensive than pipes. That also made um, the price you get not very attractive for oil, but now we have excess pipe. So that's really good. And then, yeah, just this energy security that now I think people are more aware about, okay, where's your oil coming from? So would you rather come from kind of less stable parts of the world, which we've learned that um, yeah, it's a little, little less certain mm-hmm. to rely on those and to place your economy in their hands, or would you rather go to Canada, which is um, you know, much more stable? So I think the investment setup's good. So low valuation, um, less risk around egress. So traditionally has being a risk, so less risk around egress. Um, uh, more focus on energy security. And then, yeah, ultimately, when you actually look at the underlying resource, there's actually a very good inventory base as well. So the ability to sustain production, I think is better in Canada than in other parts of the world. So all that puts together that Canada, on a relative basis, is an attractive place for energy investment.
1: Great. And what about from your, uh, your view, uh, where are you seeing opportunities?
2: Yeah, as we uh, mentioned, kind of
3: alluded earlier, we see there is some recession risk uh, like in the later part of this year and also into 2024. So broadly speaking, it's not uh, good for the global energy space, but given the advantage uh, Canadian energy has, as uh, uh, Thomas mentioned, probably we think uh, Canadian energy can uh, attract disproportionate capital. And also, kind uh, of we talk about a little bit earlier, like a midstream company, mm-hmm. actually they have a stable cash flow, highly contra- uh, contracted. So normally when a recession Environment, mainstream company tend to outperform broader energy space, and sometimes they can even outperform the broader index. So that's kind of a part of probably you want to hide. And then um, the good thing about fidelity is we are kind of an actively manager. We cannot really forecast the future, mm-hmm. but we can manage how we allocate our funds. Right? Like for me, I cover both energy and gold. And if the recession really comes, we can hide into gold as well. We can allocate more capital towards gold, and then that should kind of Benefit our investors. Yeah.
1: Since you mentioned gold, let's let's quickly talk <laughs> about that. Uh, where is the gold price today? And if a recession happens, how does that affect? the companies that you're covering?
3: Yeah. So the gold price, like this morning, I was looking at this. It was really close to 2000. It was like a 1950-ish. So um, I think this is a really good price, but I think going forward, we still have a more upside in gold because what drives gold? There's three main drivers. The first is a recession risk. The second is kind of a yield, like a real interest uh, real interest rate that have a negative correlation to gold price. And the third is a USD, uh, US dollar, because uh, the gold is kind of a denominated in, in uh, USD dollar so the recession as uh, we are forecasting um, uh, based on our internal analysis uh, we probably going to see the recession in the later ha- half of this year and next year so that should work for gold and then the near term uh a little bit headwind is the, the kind of the yield. If the, especially the Fed or the U.S. central bank probably uh, hold a, the higher yield, the higher policy rate for a little bit longer, that could be a little bit headwind for gold. But once we pass that, it uh, uh, should be like um, good news for, for gold. And normally gold, if we look at historical cycles and charts, gold tend to outperform in late cycle and very early cycle. And we are getting closer to that each day you know?
1: When do we have the infrastructure to handle the electrification of the automotive industry and is nuclear part of that solution?
3: Yeah, so nuclear... it's a kind of a uh, the source of a different energy is all kind of a mixed right nuclear in Canada is already a big part of our uh, electricity generation so I think going forward is uh, as you probably know it's a kind of take a longer time to build a new uh, nuclear plant so we probably see probably nuclear plants uh, coming online 2028 20, 2030 20, uh, so we be a little bit kind of a, a longer term story uh, in terms of the demand but then uh, in the near term given the the under- Development and the purchase of the contract from utility companies, we still see a big pickup in the contracting. So that's is good news for the nuclear and for the uranium uh, space. Yeah.
1: Great. Uh, anything to add there on uh,
2: electrification? Do we have the infrastructure? Yeah, I think it's it's a question. Yeah, it's, it's an important question, but I think Lulu pretty yeah. much hit the hit the high points in that. Um, yeah, I think investment will be made in infrastructure right. to allow for that transition.
1: So we just have a couple of minutes left, um, and and I'm wondering why Fidelity. Talk to me a bit about your approach when it comes to the companies that you cover. Um, why should people, you know, maybe think about Fidelity in, in the energy space?
2: Okay, so for for me, it's a few things. So one, we can take a longer term focus. So generally, um, that longer term focus. Everyone says they can take a long term focus, but the way our incentive and our way. Our culture is you actually can take a long-term view, um, and I think that's important. We have really good long-term relationships with the corporates we cover, so we do get to see them periodically, um, and that helps us with our research process. And then there's just really good alignment, right? Like every day we go in focused on performance, and performance is what gets you promoted, uh, how you get how you get motivated. So every day we go in focused on performance, right? Ooh. It's not about sales, not about other stuff, it's about uh, investing, right? And I spend every day, one hundred percent of my day, focused on investing. So I think that those are the key things that uh, make Fidelity such a special place to me. Great. Lulu? Yeah,
3: for me, it's, I feel like the research part is a kind of a key differentiation for Fidelity. Uh, we are very co- collaborative environment. We have a central pool of database of all our research notes, So I can go back to like early 2000 to see what people are saying about the energy at that time and then learn from all the histories. So I think this is a very unique perspective of Fidelity. We share everything. We collaborate with each, each, each other. Like today's like talk, mm-hmm. we, we talk, join the talk together. So so I think that's a very uh, very collegial environment and then that's help people to build knowledge and help each other we we just gather so much risk across a different space uh, we gather the risk from what's happening in the europe what's happening in the industrial sector what's happening for the housing sector that's all helped me to make my research easier and generating more deeper insights
1: excellent uh we're gonna leave it there we can talk about this all day i'm sure but uh, hopefully we'll chat again soon thank you both for being here great thank great. you Rob. thank you
0: Thanks for listening to the Fidelity Connects podcast. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe to Fidelity Connects on your podcast platform of choice. And if you like what you're hearing, leave a review or a five-star rating. Fidelity Mutual Funds and ETFs are available by working with a financial advisor or through an online brokerage account. Visit fidelity.ca slash buy for more information. While visiting fidelity.ca, you can also find information on future live webcasts. And don't forget to follow Fidelity Canada on Twitter and LinkedIn. Thanks again. See you next time.